0: I invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We've been here for the past few weeks. We're going to finish the chapter this morning as we study the closing verses. But like the last few weeks, I'm going to read the whole chapter before we begin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is what the Apostle Paul writes, moved by the Holy Spirit. Telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Father, we come before you and pray you give us humble, receptive hearts to receive the message you have for us this morning. Help me... As a teacher, to be clear, we pray you would make us attentive to the areas in life that we can adjust or need to radically change, either way, so that we would more honor and glorify Christ. We pray he would be honored as we study his word this morning. We ask for his name's sake. Amen. I don't remember where I first heard it, but someone went around to teachers, middle school, high school, college professors. In this survey, and basically asked them, What do you teach? The majority of teachers gave answers that were aligned with the subjects that they taught. So, I teach math, I teach history, I teach economics. But a small percentage of the teachers gave an answer focused not on the material, but on the recipients. So, their answers were more like, I teach seventh graders. I teach female students in, say, some college class. Both answers are appropriate. Technically, they're correct, but they have a different focus. One is focused on the subject. One is focused on the recipient. The, both of those components are necessary for anyone who's going to be a really effective teacher or coach. You have to know and appreciate your subject But you also have to know and love the people you're teaching. You have to know both if you're going to effectively teach or minister to some group. When anyone forgets any of those elements, then teaching is going to be lacking. I'm sure most of you had the experience in maybe high school or college where a teacher or professor is an expert in his or her field, knows all there is to know about the subject, but can't teach a bit to the people, so so they know, I'm sure they love their subject, but they don't really know their audience, at least they don't know how to teach them effectively, or maybe they don't even care about the students. The opposite extreme would be a teacher who knows and loves the class, but doesn't really know or love the subject they're teaching, and in that kind of atmosphere, you have very great emotional, relational connections among the class, and with the teacher, they just don't learn very much, and that's not good either if you're a teacher. Those two aspects of effective teaching apply not just in education at school, at home, and at work, but also, I think, in in Christian ministry. You need to know and love the content of your instruction, but you also need to know and love the people to whom you're ministering. That applies whether it's in the pulpit or in one of our Sunday school classes or even the adult classes. You're teaching material to a specific Group And just applying that into our lives, those of us who are parents or grandparents, we have to remember that we're called not just to teach the Bible in a generic sense, we're called to teach the Word of God to our own children. There's something specific about that. That, that instruction is supposed to come within the context of a loving family. We shouldn't have teaching that is cold or detached, This is a principle we've been seeing repeatedly in the life of the Apostle Paul as we've especially been studying his first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul understood his message. He was a faithful minister of the gospel. He knew it. He loved it. He lived to teach the word of God. But At the same time, he knew and he loved his audience, which in this case was the Thessalonian church. He cared for them. There was affection in his heart. And we've been seeing that all the way through the opening three chapters. Back in chapter two, you might remember, he compared his ministry to a nursing mother and an exhorting father. He loved them. He cared for them. He walked among them with humility, with gentleness. Instead of complaining to God about things he didn't like, he thanked God for the church, for the opportunity to minister. He thanked God for the spiritual growth he saw in them. And then once he was separated from them, he grieved It broke his heart to not know what had happened with the church after he was forced to flee because of persecution, and that's why he sent Timothy. In addition to all we've already seen regarding Paul's heart for the people, we come now to the final verses of chapter 3, and we see another important expression of his love. We see prayer. Just like a loving mother or father does or would do, Paul prays concerning his spiritual children. And just so you're prepared, we're having a a bit of a longer introduction today, but we will eventually get to the text. Before we do that, I want to say some general words about prayer, because we haven't come to a prayer in a while. Anytime you come to a prayer, especially in the letters of the New Testament, we have on the one hand a divinely approved example. This is a prayer that honors God. But we also have an opportunity to pause and assess our own prayer life or our own hearts. I remember a professor in seminary told the class that you could always make the congregation feel guilty about three things, their Bible reading, their evangelism, and their prayer life. And he cautioned us against abusing those topics just to belittle the congregation. My intent today is not to burden you with guilt about how little we all pray, and I don't think that was Paul's intent either. Paul's intent was to express his love and then to the church bring comfort and encouragement. So that's what we're going to see today as we study this prayer. Anytime we pray, there are two main components to prayer. There's proclamation and there's petition. Proclamation is announcing something. So that would be praising God for something, thanking God for something, or even confessing sin. It's, It's a type of proclamation. The other side of prayer is petition, requests. You're asking for something, and that's what most people think about when they think about Prayer. The prayer we're looking at today is a request. It's not a proclamation. It's not a doxology. There are some pretty simple requests Paul is making. And in thinking about the petition or the request portion of prayer, you should know that there are two main elements in any request we make in prayer. The first element of petition in prayer is dependency. We pray to God as an expression of our dependency on him. We know and believe that only God has the power to do the things that we're asking him to do. We need him to act on our behalf. We're not just going to God asking for him to to, to provide a little bit of assistance in what we're doing. We're not going to God simply asking for permission to do things. We're asking for grace. We're asking for divine enablement because we're completely dependent on him and prayer expresses that. And Jesus told his disciples, John 15, 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, that's speaking of a connection and prayer is an expression of that connection. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to depend on Christ. The apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, he's thinking about all the difficulties and the poverty that he had to face and and the persecution. And he says, I can do all things Through him who strengthens me. And that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is an expression of dependency. Dependency leads us to make petition. When we're not depending on God, our prayer life is going to lack because we just feel we can do everything in our own strength. And when our prayer life is lacking, we should back up and evaluate whether or not that's connected to a lack of dependency. We're not looking to God for strength. And enablement, so dependency is one element of petition. The second element of petition is desire. We have dependency and desire. We make requests simply because we desire certain things in dependency we 're recognizing God has to work in desire we 're recognizing there are some things we want to see or want to continue to see. One of the most famous prayers in the Bible is a prayer Jesus modeled for his disciples. We call it the Lord's Prayer, and it is essentially a list of petitions. They're desires being expressed, and they are the kinds of things that we are supposed to desire. We should, the first line is, our Father, heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We should desire God's name to be holy and revered. We should desire God's kingdom to come. We should desire God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's appropriate even in prayer to desire daily provision. That's our daily bread as long as we recognize that God is the one who provides it. It's good also to desire forgiveness. We want renewed relationships ultimately with God but also with one another. And we should desire holiness. That's why the end of the Lord's prayer is lead us not into temptation. So just remember that. that, That's what leads us to make requests before God. There is dependency and there is desire. If you don't have dependency, you're not going to pray. And if you have no desire, there's there's apathy. You don't care about the things of God. You also are not going to be led to pray. And thinking about those aspects. The prayer we're looking at today at the end of chapter 3 in 1 Thessalonians is a prayer of desire. Paul is making requests to God. And he makes one request per verse. Per verse. Verse, no perverse request, sorry. There's one request in each verse. Go ahead and turn there now. First Thessalonians chapter three, verse eleven. The requests he make are not generic requests. I just want this for my Christian life. That's not what he's doing. He's making specific requests concerning the Thessalonians. These requests are expressions of love and affection, and they are to us examples of the types of things that we should desire as well. So let's start with verse 11, number one. Three desires in this passage. Number one, we see a desire for personal connection. That's verse 11. Paul has a desire for personal connection. Let's read it. He says, verse 11, Now... Here's the prayer, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. This is an example of the prayers he mentioned back, if you go back one verse, in verse 10. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul had a desire for personal connection, personal ministry Back in chapter 2, Paul said he had tried multiple times to go to Thessalonica, but Satan had hindered him. And Paul knows he is not stronger than Satan, but he knows someone who is. His prayer is a request to God the Father and Jesus the Son that they would guide him and his crew so they could meet the Thessalonians again. He's praying that God would remove all the obstacles that Satan had placed in his way. And in the prayer, there's a wonderful reminder here of Christ's deity. It's not uh, clearly seen in English because of the way our verbs work. But in the Greek, the verb direct, may God guide or may God direct us, is a singular verb. But Paul gives two subjects. He says God the Father and then Jesus the Lord. He wants them both to guide us. It'd be as if Jesus said, it'd be as if someone had said God the Father and Jesus the Lord guides us. And you go, every teacher goes, no, no, subject, verb, agreement, they have to match. It's it's more clear obviously in Spanish where where you can see it more, but you've got a plural subject and a singular verb which is a reminder not just about a grammar lesson but about the unity between the Father and the Father. And the Son, there's an equality between them. You can pray to God, and that's right and good, and you can pray to the Son. We don't want to blend them. We don't want to confuse them as persons. We should recognize they're united. They're one in essence and in purpose and in power. So Paul is depending on God the Father and on Christ the Lord to reunite him with the Thessalonians. I want to see you again and just to fill in the the answer to the prayer, if you read Acts, he won't do that until later in his third missionary journey. He will finally get to see them in person. But this is such an amazing example of Paul's love for the church. He wasn't the the one-hit wonder preacher. I preach a sermon, people love it, people respond, and then I'm out and going on to the next city. He couldn't bring himself to preach the gospel and then abandon them, even under the excuse of the sovereignty of God. God will watch over them. They're Christians. They're fine. That's not him. He wanted to keep ministering to them. And even as an apostle writing the eternal, authoritative, powerful word of God in ink and paper, even as he did that, he recognized the value of personal ministry. And personal connection, he wanted to be with them. May God guide us, direct us to see you. And there's something there for our culture now. We have an internet culture, a Zoom culture. You know, I guess know the cultures of the generations: the Greatest Generation, Baby Boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, now Gen Z, or I've heard them referred to as Zoomers as well, because that's what we're growing up in. We, we want to thank God for technology. We want to thank God for all the good things that technology can bring. But we don't want to minimize the joy and the effectiveness of personal interaction, personal connections. There's a sadness in my heart to know that there are people who assume they can be part of a church just by connecting online. And with that, there's a frustration in my heart for church leaders and pastors who actually promote that kind of message. Countless people in the world and across this nation who, not out of necessity, but out of, by choice, decide they will gather on a Sunday and then someone hits play and the sermon starts on a video. They usually call that, a, oh, that's a satellite campus. You can't talk to the actual preacher. You can't ask him questions after the service. You can't see into his life. You definitely can't have lunch with the pastor, the guy who preached. But the people in those kinds of movements believe, well, that makes us more effective as teachers. We reach more people without recognizing that it falls short of God's desire for his people and for his shepherds. Again, that's not that a live stream is inherently wrong. There are places where the gospel goes out, especially in persecution areas, but to make that the norm and the standard that you can't talk to the person preaching is not the vision God has given for the church in the New Testament. Labor, he speaks of pastors as those who shepherd among the sheep. More important though, the thinking about the culture or other churches, let's just pause and think about our own hearts. How much do you value personal connections? Do you actually look forward to gathering with the people of God? Not just to to be in one service at the same time, but all the extra things before service and after service. We gather for mutual encouragement. We gather for mutual ministry. When Hebrews 10 says, uh, don't forsake the gathering, then it says, spur one another on to love and good deeds. The assumption is that's what's happening in the gathering. It's not just supposed to be one guy speaking, and, and that's the only ministry happening. It's the church Are we taking deliberate steps to connect with others? I think you all know Halloween is next week. And regardless of how you feel about the day, regardless of what you will or won't do, it's interesting to think that it is the one, possibly the one day a year where our culture, as separated and isolated as it is, Well, go knock on your neighbor's door. It's okay to say hello to a random stranger. In the Spanish service, a lot of people are born in other countries. They know what it is to walk down the street and say hello. The person could be on the other side of the street. You say hello. I've heard it's the same in Texas. (laughs) But not in L.A. That's just not L.A. culture but one day a year, you go knock on your neighbor's door and you say hello to random people. Why? For a piece of candy. One year, we were passing out candy bars, the big ones at our house, and a lady like I was probably 18,19, a lady, in, you know, in her 30s, probably she asked for candy, and because it's a bigger candy bar, And I said, "Oh, they're just for the kids." And she said, "Why well, didn't dress up for nothing?" All we break the rules of what's allowed in life for candy. Why aren't we willing to step into people's lives, not just one night a year, I'm saying, but as a regular part of a life, why aren't we willing to do that because we value something greater than a piece of candy? We need to value personal connections for the glory of Christ, whether that's with brothers and sisters in the faith, or unbelievers. Sometimes a simple application of these kind of truth is go say hello to your neighbor. Introduce yourself. Go talk to your coworker. Or go talk to a brother or sister in the faith. Go outside of church. Invite them to a meal. Or during the week, find some way to connect. You can do that with Christians. You can do that with non-Christians. But as you do that, that's part of how the world sees the love of Christ. And that's part of what it means for us as a church to let our light shine in a dark world. Personal connections are how God works through you and in you because relationships are messy. And you learn to be patient, and you learn to be kind, and you learn to serve. So to the degree that you cut yourself off from people, you're cutting yourself off from the work of God in your life and from the joy he intended you to have as part of the body of Christ. Like Paul, we need to desire personal connection. Let's look at verse 12 too. Here's the second desire. There's a desire verse 11 number 1 for personal connection number 2 we see a desire for increasing love a desire for increasing love this is verse 12 he continues with another request and may the lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for one another and for all as we do for you two simple verbs increase and Abound, but the idea there is something that is excessive. It's way more than what is typically allowed or expected. It's the good sense of that's just way too much. I don't know if we have a, a good English equivalent for demasiado, but that's the idea. Overabounding, and maybe as a good picture, we use Halloween for the first point, we can use Thanksgiving because you sit down and maybe it's your aunt or your grandma and they give you a plate. And you enjoy the plate. And then they give you another one. And then they give you another one. Mijo, just a little more. It's good. Have some more. And you're thinking, I, I, I don't have any room. I'm done. But the food keeps coming. That abounding imagery is what Paul's asking this church to have in love. He wants a church overflowing with the love of Christ. And the love of Christ has a, an emotional component. That's, that's affection. That's uh, uh, sentiment. But there's also action. And no matter what limits the world places on love, Paul says, no, I want more. More love. Just more love. Keep piling it on. Go past what anyone expects. I pray that that church would increase and abound in love. He wants love within the church between brothers and sisters in the faith, and he wants love going out to the world. That's what verse 12 says love for one another in the church, and love for all outward. He wants a church that stands out because love is multiplying, it can't be contained. You might picture love is just oozing out of this church. Like a fruit tree that doesn't seem to run out, the harvest keeps increasing. It's it's abounding. And on the one side, we know love is—you could say natural or the supernatural effect of someone who, who who knows Christ. You receive the love of Christ in your heart, and that comes out. That's part of someone who knows and belongs to Christ. But that doesn't mean that love is easy or automatic. That's why it's the most repeated command in the New Testament for the one anothers love, one another." Christ washed his disciples' feet. He says, "Go do the same. Love, serve one another." And because it's not easy or automatic, that's why Paul's praying for it. Real love, Christ-like love, is an investment. It's a sacrifice. It comes from having received the love of Christ, and it's motivated by the recognition that God has promised us a reward. Go ahead and hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians. Go back with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. So, before Colossians, before Philippians, before Ephesians, we have Galatians. And I want you to go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. There are obviously plenty of passages we could use as we talk about Christian love, but I think this is a good parallel here. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Paul writes to this church, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And sowing and reaping, if you're not familiar, are farming terms. You sow seed in the ground and you reap a harvest. The seeds you place in the ground are going to be exactly or should be what grows in the crops. That's an obvious principle, but he's making a spiritual corollary. Verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. So Paul presents a dichotomy. You have a choice. You can invest in the things of this world, the things of the flesh, or you can invest in the things that please God, the things of the Spirit. The things of this world will bring a temporary pleasure. That's a biblical truth. But they'll bring pain and ruin and corruption. The things of God are more difficult to invest in, but they bring a reward. And that's a truth we need to be reminded of over and over because that's what enables us to to persevere. Look at verse 9. Paul says to them, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Well, what is one good example of sowing to the Spirit? What is an example of how we can invest in the things of God in order to receive an eternal reward? Paul gives us one in the very next verse. Look at verse 10, Galatians 6, 10. So then, as we have opportunity to outflow of the previous verse, so then, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says to the church, love one another. Love the people in the church and love the people outside the church. That's how you sow to the Spirit. And like a farmer who needs to prepare his field and plant his seeds, loving others is not going to be easy. It's not going to be automatic, but it's going to yield a harvest. And the harvest is joy and eternal life. Paul knew how difficult that kind of investment was, and that's why he praises for the Thessalonians. I pray, God, you would increase, you would abound their love. You can go ahead and turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to just remember the context of what's happening as he writes in this letter, because when Paul envisions a church that is abounding in love, he's not painting this ideal picture of people who just hold hands and hug one another and never have any problems. He knows this church is facing severe difficulty. This church is going through an extremely difficult trial and Satan is tempting them to abandon the faith. There is persecution, there is opposition. And because of that, love is all the more necessary. Their love, because of the difficulty, will also be all the more visible and effective. I think Paul understands that it is their love that will enable them to get through this difficult time. And Peter understood that principle. We covered this when we were preaching through First Peter. In First Peter chapter 1, his first specific command is love one another. He says, love one another fervently, He's calling Christians generally to live a holy life, walk in holiness, walk in fear, but the first specific command is love one another because his people were also suffering tremendously. They're under the persecution in the Roman Empire, and Peter understood what they need is love. Love is necessary in times of difficulty, but it's also effective because that's how the world sees a difference. Paul desired that kind of love for the church and he modeled it for them. He's not mandating that they do something that he was unwilling to do himself. That's why at the end of verse 12 he says, I'm praying that you would have an abounding love just as we do for you. So again, what a good reminder and what a good example of a holy Desire, we need to desire increasing love. Paul said it the Romans said outdo one another in honor. We should be praying to God that his love, the love of Jesus Christ, would be evident in our own lives individually, but in our own lives corporately as a church. And we should be working so that his love is shown to our church family and then through our church family to the rest of the world. Paul desired an increasing love, and so should you. More than praying for the problems to to go away, he prays that love would endure. So when your boss or your coworker or your mom or your dad gives you a hard time, don't just pray. It's okay to pray that the problems would go away, but pray that God would grant you love. Lastly, we come to the third desire. Paul had a desire for personal connection. He had a desire for increasing love. And now, number three, we see a desire for enduring holiness. A desire for enduring holiness. Look at verse 13. This is the final verse of the chapter and the final verse of his prayer. He says, so that he, the Lord, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness... Before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul's looking forward to the end. Paul was not interested in temporary bursts of righteousness. Hey, this guy, you know, did the dishes tonight. Hey, she didn't yell back at her boss for one day. That's not what Paul's after. It's not enough. He wants enduring holiness, enduring righteousness. He's praying that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father, not just today, but even up until the coming of the Lord Jesus. And that's been one of the main themes we've seen in Thessalonians. In chapter 1, Paul said the church turned from idols to serve the living God. They, they, they became a people who hoped in the coming of Christ because that was the day of their deliverance. That was the day of God's wrath upon the world and God's salvation for his people. In chapter 2, Paul says that's the day when he's going to fully rejoice because of God's work in the Thessalonians. He says when that day comes, you will be my crown of joy, my crown of boasting Paul, you could say, was an end times guy. And he had an end times ministry. We tend to think, oh, end times, that's, that's advanced. You don't study that until, you know, you're a super Christian. Or... But Paul now, he's talking to a brand new church. And he taught them about the end, about the coming of Christ. And we're going to see more about it in chapters 4 and 5. But for now, here in chapter 3, Paul connects the coming of Christ to the endurance of the church. I want you blameless in holiness on the day Christ comes and you stand before the judgment of God. So this is a prayer for perseverance. This is a prayer that their faith and their holiness, which we've seen multiple times, would endure. And theologically, we know that those who truly belong to Christ will endure They'll never fall away, but we don't want to ignore the means by which that happens. People sometimes will ask, what do you think about the phrase, once saved, always saved? That is a true theological statement. You just better make sure you're actually saved. And we don't want to use that phrase to ignore God's means of preserving his people. From an earthly perspective, we endure because of the ministry of God's word in our lives and God's people. From a heavenly perspective, we endure because Christ sustains us as our high priest. He intercedes for us. He teaches us by his spirit. He keeps us. He holds us in his hand, to use Jesus' words. And so Paul prays that Christ would continue working in their lives and bearing fruit in their lives all the way until he returns to save them eternally. Paul wants to see this church make it all the way to the finish line. And that should be our own desire as well. We want to see our brothers and sisters, our children come to the faith. We we, we internalize what Jesus said. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so because of that, We understand that in this life, we're not going to have perfect confidence about someone's faith. We have assurance that those who are saved will not be saved, but individually, especially as people are growing, we, we hope to see fruit in their life. We make an earthly judgment about it in the church when we make someone a member. But only God truly knows who belongs to him. Jesus said there are wheat and there are tares, And you have to wait, and he'll sort it out in the end. There will be sheep and there will be goats. And that reality is intended to be a warning to us that any one of us can fall into the allure of the world and fall away from the faith we profess. Any one of us could one day demonstrate that we never had real faith to begin with. That's what John says, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us because they never really were of us. And so Paul prays, Father, may their holiness endure. Christ, would you guard them and grow them until the day you come for them. As we come to a close, I I want you to notice something small, but I think significant in verse 13. Look at the opening words to verse 13. ESV, I think New American also says, so that. So that. There's, there's a purpose. There, there are some translations that skip over those two words and they lose the impact of what Paul is saying. Paul is not starting a new sentence in verse 13. And he's not simply jumping to a third request. He is connecting his final request that they be blameless in holiness. He's connecting that to his previous request. Verse 13, the desire of verse 13 is the outcome of what Paul prays for in verse 12. In other words, Paul wants the church, verse 12, to abound in love so that, verse 13, they would be blameless before the Lord. And what's the connection between those two things? How does our love right now in the church and for the world, how does that love connect to our future holiness when Christ comes? Verse 12, love one another so that you'll be blameless before the Lord. What's the, so that's like the arrow connecting the two things. What's the connection though? One connection between our present love and our eternal salvation is that our love right now is a preview of heaven to come. It's a glimpse of the joy and the unity of heaven. Another connection, a more generic connection, is that our love now is evidence of our genuine salvation. If we have abounding and increasing love in our lives, that's evidence that we belong to Christ. We'll be saved when he comes. But there's more to it than that. Our love is more than just a preview of heaven and it's more than just evidence that we will be in heaven. More significant than those, love is how we make progress toward our final state. I want you to abound in love so that you will be blameless before the Lord. Picture, normally people think of the Christian life as a race, a marathon. That's biblical analogy. But picture your Christian life now as an Olympic rowing race. You're in the rowboat, the single one, just you. You're, you're, you're working hard. You're working against the current so that you'll make progress. On the one hand, love is the uniform. It identifies you as belonging to Christ. That's love. That's the evidence of salvation. But at the same time, love is also the oar. It's the paddle you're using to keep pulling the water behind you. It's the driving force of your progress. That's what love is, and that's what Paul is showing here. That's the connection he's making. Your effort in loving others, whether in the church or outside the church, is how God works to sanctify you, to keep making progress toward that final day. Your love is how God matures you in the faith. One of the theological synonyms for salvation is sanctification. To be sanctified means to be made holy. It means to be set apart. And theologically, sanctification has three components. At the moment of salvation or justification, the moment of, of new birth, you repent of sin. You're trusting in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. You receive what is known as positional sanctification. You're saved from the penalty of sin and you're set apart for God that you're positionally sanctified. That's positional sanctification. But at that moment, you begin also the second. That's an instant. At that moment, you begin a second phase of sanctification and that's called progressive sanctification. That's the daily progress of being saved from the practice and the power of sin. You're becoming more and more like Christ. That's progressive sanctification. The third phase is final sanctification, also known as glorification. That's when you see Christ, according to 1 John 3, and you become like him, free from sin. So you have positional sanctification, that's an instant. You have progressive sanctification, that's our lives now. And then you have final sanctification. Verse 12 is talking about Progressive sanctification, abounding in love for others in this life. Paul wants the church to grow in that. Verse 13 is talking about final sanctification. He wants the church to be perfect, blameless on the day they see Christ. And in those two words of verse 13, so that, Paul is teaching that our progressive sanctification and our final sanctification are connected. Right now, we're growing in the direction of our final state. We're we're, we're rowing the boat, so to speak. And as long as you're here rowing the boat, you'll make it to the finish line. If you stop rowing, if you stop pressing on toward the goal, to use Paul's words, you will not make it to the end. Because the true saints of God will persevere. The true saints of God will not walk away and they will not, to use Paul's other words, make a shipwreck of their faith. That's why in Colossians 1, Paul describes the church being blameless before the Lord and he says it will only happen, Colossians 1, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So our work and our efforts in love are what move us toward the finish line of standing blameless before the Lord. Hopefully you see how important Paul's prayer is. He wants increasing, he wants abounding love in the church because that's what's gonna lead them to eternal perfection, eternal and enduring holiness. You want to make it to that day? You want to stand before God and be blameless and accepted into the perfection of heaven? You want to be able to look around in heaven and see your brothers and sisters and say, we made it. By the grace of God, we know, but you made it. If that's the case, then we need to let our desire for final sanctification be the driving force for our progressive sanctification. It's not salvation by works. I know that's how people will take it. It's not we're not being saved by our works. But because of the final salvation that will be for the people of God that compels as we were studying first Peter we kept saying that hope prompts us in holiness. The fruit of those who belong to Christ is a continued life of faithfulness. And so we should pursue holiness and love not just as a preview of heaven not just as evidence of our salvation, but most importantly, as the way in which we make progress toward that final goal. These desires that we have or should have to connect with others, to love others, to be with others blameless before the Lord, those desires should compel us to fight the sin and the laziness and the excuses of a sinful heart. We should be pursuing love so that one day we would have our hearts perfected in love and blameless when we see Christ. Love is how we move in that direction, and it's how we bring others along with us as well. What earthly desire could compare with that? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and your reminders of these glorious truths. We are so tempted, yes, because of culture, but more so because of our own sinful hearts. We're so tempted to our comfort and our laziness. And though we celebrate the joys of technology, we want to recognize how easily that separates us from others. We pray you'd give us an increasing desire for personal Connections. There are people in our church who would love to be here and are unable right now. We pray you would move in us to minister to them, to visit them. We pray you would give us an increasing desire for love that abounds. We read about the early church buying and selling possessions to provide for one another. And how the people held them in high high esteem. Because that love had an impact. That love made a difference. And as difficult as things seem to be getting and may be getting in the years to come, we pray you'd give us a greater desire for love than for personal convenience. We thank you too, Lord, for the many, many... Examples we've had in this church of brothers and sisters who've shown us the love of Christ, who've ministered to us, who've taken us by the hand or placed their arm around our shoulder and walked with us in difficulties and in joys. Thank you for placing us in a family of brothers and sisters, and thank you for the sure hope that we have that as we continue walking in love, though we see how far there is to progress We thank you for the certainty that we will make it one day. We will be blameless before you. Help us not take that for granted, but help us continue to be grateful for the enduring ministry of Christ. And would that compel us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pray for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the increased proclamation of his truth in this dark world. Amen.